48K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Todd Harding. Tonight's headlines. Carrie Lam postpones her policy address to buy more time to include measures that require further discussions with Beijing. Electoral officials say allowing people outside of Hong Kong to vote in local elections would raise numerous problems that need addressing. And the observatory says they may issue the number eight typhoon signal overnight. The chief executive, Carrie Lam, says she's postponing the policy address, which she had been scheduled to give this week until at least next month. Instead of delivering the address in LegCo on Wednesday, Mrs Lam will lead a delegation to Shenzhen, where President Xi Jinping will give a speech marking the 40th anniversary of the country's first special economic zone. However, the chief executive said the delay was not due to the clash with the Shenzhen event. She says she needs to visit Beijing to seek approval from state leaders for new economic policies. She dismissed suggestions that she was belittling her policy speech and stressed that she was not due to meet Mr Xi in Shenzhen. But the main purpose of the postponement is because of the possibility of positive things and policies coming out from my discussions with the central people's government, the various ministries and commissions. The pro-establishment camp says the delay in the policy address will give the chief executive more time to present a better blueprint for Hong Kong. Here's New People's Party lawmaker Eunice Young. Originally, we didn't have any high hopes, but today the chief executive said she has proposed a series of measures to the central government for it to support us. I think this will restore our confidence in Hong Kong and the Hong Kong government. That makes it a policy address that is worth the anticipation and worth the wait. But the pan-democrats say while the public are in desperate need of assistance, the CE has clearly been ordered to hold off on announcing any new policies and to wait for further instructions from Beijing. His Democratic Party chairman, Wu Chi-Wai. Why Caroline will make such a change is basically because she has received some sort of order coming from the north, from the central government, saying that she has to hold up her policy address so that she has to waiting for further instruction coming from the central government in order to polish her policy address. So that is the basic reason for us to say she is now a puppet only. Election officials have warned that any move by the government to allow Hong Kongers outside of the territory to vote in the SAR's polls would throw up a lot of questions, pointing out that they had no experience in conducting elections elsewhere. Damon Pang reports. Sources had told RTHK that Chief Executive Carrie Lam was set to announce in her now-scrapped policy address that the government would let Hong Kong permanent residents living in the Greater Bay Area or other mainland cities vote there on election days. But releasing details of a report to the CE, the Electoral Affairs Commission says it advised the government it would have to tackle numerous issues if it went ahead with such a plan. They include the risks involved in transporting ballots and the application and enforcement of Hong Kong election laws. The EAC says, being as it has no experience in conducting the poll abroad, it would have to rely on government departments familiar with the situation and operations elsewhere for coordination and implementation. It added that if postal votes come in from outside Hong Kong, the body would not be able to verify the identity of the voters. The observatory says it will consider issuing the number 8 typhoon signal at dawn as tropical storm Nanka edges closer to Hong Kong. Senior scientific officer Zheng Ping says the weather will deteriorate overnight. According to the current forecast track, 
Tropical Storm Nanka will be closest to Hong Kong tonight and tomorrow morning, skirting within about 500 kilometers to the south of Hong Kong. Together with the combined effect with the northeast monsoon, local winds are expected to strengthen gradually during the overnight period. Please complete precaution as soon as possible. Stay away from the shoreline and not to engage in water sports. Two colleges in Tun Mun are to close for two weeks after a student contracted COVID-19. The Tun Mun Youth College student went to classes on October the 5th, a day after experiencing loss of taste, a symptom of the coronavirus. The Institute of Vocational Education, which is connected to the college, has also been advised to close for two weeks. Altogether, Hong Kong confirmed 11 new cases today, of which six are imported. Two more residents of a home for disabled people in Kwai Chung have been diagnosed with COVID-19, taking the total in that cluster to 17. You're listening to RTHK. The time's exactly five minutes past 11. Researchers at the University of Hong Kong say they've found that a drug commonly used to treat stomach ulcers could potentially suppress the coronavirus. They say lab experiments show that the drug, known as RBC, can reduce viral loads in infected cells by more than a thousandfold. Dr Wang Runming from the Department of Chemistry says the drug is cheaper and safer than another that's used to treat COVID-19, remdesivir. It is very potent, as I mentioned before, and it is very safe because the RBC has been used in the clinic for many years and it can rapidly be repurposed into the clinical trials. And third, RBC is pretty stable and the solubility of RBC is, is, is very good and it can store at the room temperature and without special requirements. And the inhibition of inhibitors by RBC is irreversible and last but not least, RBC is pretty cheap. The mainland city of Qingdao says its entire population of 9 million people will be tested for COVID-19 after a handful of new infections were discovered. Health officials say the testing program will be completed within five days. The BBC's Stephen McDonnell reports from Beijing. The Chinese authorities now have a strategy of mass testing, even when a new coronavirus cluster appears to be relatively minor. This week in the coastal city of Qingdao, more than 9 million residents will be checked after a dozen locally transmitted infections were found to have links to a hospital treating COVID patients who've arrived from overseas. Amongst those who've tested positive are a taxi driver and staff working at the Qingdao Chest Hospital, which has now been locked down. The apartment blocks of those who've been infected have also been placed under restrictive measures. The mother of murder victim Pun Hu Wing has given an ultimatum to her daughter's confessed killer, saying he must surrender himself to the authorities in Taiwan by October the 23rd, or she will withdraw her offer to plead for his life. Candice Wong reports. Chan Tong Kai has admitted to killing his pregnant girlfriend, Pun Hu Wing, in Taipei in 2018, but has only served a jail sentence here for money laundering as he cannot be tried for the murder in Hong Kong. The case prompted the government to propose a broad extradition bill that served as the catalyst for months of social unrest in Hong Kong last year. Chan had said he's willing to turn himself in to Taiwan authorities, but still has not done so. 
Mrs. Poon had earlier promised to ask the court in Taiwan to spare him from the death penalty if he does turn himself in, but now says this must happen before October 23rd, one year to the day that he was freed from a Hong Kong prison and made the surrender pledge. Chan Tong Kai, you are no longer a child. You are already 22 years old. If by 23rd of this month you have yet to step onto a flight to Taiwan, I will not plead for you, she said in a newly released audio clip. Her warning comes as a Taiwanese law firm, Li and Li, confirmed that it is helping Chan with the surrender arrangements. Taiwanese authorities have said it had asked the FAL government for assistance on three occasions over Chan's transfer and over the collection of evidence only to be ignored. The Court of Final Appeal has quashed a government decision not to incorporate six enclaves into their surrounding country parks, ordering the Country and Marine Parks Authority to look again at the matter. The top court upheld a challenge brought by Chankar Lam from the Save Our Country Parks Alliance, overturning lower court rulings against her. The court told the authority to consult the Country and Marine Parks Board before submitting new recommendations to the chief executive. Ms Chan says it's a major victory for environmentalists. For the last 10 years, we can see that like the government have made a lot of decisions and didn't listen to the professional advice. So this decision actually defines what is program and then what kind of program they should ask the opinions of the board. So we hope that like this could set a precedent case for the others consultation date, which is ongoing or in the future. The government has set out the details of rules under which all newly appointed civil servants must take an oath or make a declaration that they will uphold the basic law, bear allegiance to the Hong Kong SAR and be responsible to the government. In a circular to departments, it says the requirement will apply to all civil servants who joined the government on or after July the 1st this year. The Professional Teachers Union has formally submitted an appeal to the Education Bureau on behalf of a primary school teacher who's been struck off after officials ruled that he'd promoted Hong Kong independence in class. The union says it still has faith in the appeal process, despite the politically charged nature of the case and the fact that the appeal board's members are appointed by the chief executive. Its president, Fung Wai Wa, says he hopes the board members can make their decision professionally. We want them to make their judgment, not according to political intention. But we also are aware that many of these decisions are actually made according to political motives behind. But we still hope that our Hong Kong is not that bad. We still hope that through this kind of procedural system to appeal, we can still have some room to fight for justice. Pro-democracy lawmaker Claudia Mo has called on RTHK to scrap a recently relaunched investigation into the conduct of a reporter, Nabella Koza. Ms Koza was cleared of wrongdoing by the public broadcaster's management after complaints about her sharp questioning of officials. However, she was told last month that her probation as a civil servant would be extended while the investigation resumed. Ms Mo said she'd collected 60,000 signatures in support of the reporter. The U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee has begun a confirmation hearing for President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, in what the chairman, Lindsey Graham, acknowledged would be a long, contentious week. Democrats say the Republicans are rushing the confirmation ahead of November's presidential election. 
but Senator Graham said the process to confirm her after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death was above board. There's nothing unconstitutional about this process. This is a vacancy that's occurred through a tragic loss of a great woman, and we're going to fill that vacancy with another great woman. The bottom line here is that the Senate is doing its duty constitutionally. 48-year-old Judge Barrett is deeply religious and holds conservative views on issues such as abortion. Her likely approval would cement a conservative majority on the top court. The Nobel Prize for Economics has been awarded to two American professors, Paul Milgram and Robert B. Wilson, for their work on the theory of auctions. The two men have helped develop new auction formats intended to generate better outcomes, for example, to achieve the widest benefits to society rather than the highest price when approving emissions allowances. Here's the BBC's Darshini David. They've been looking at why it is we bid in certain ways and Wilson looked at what's called the winner's curse. So why it is potential bidders are reluctant to bid perhaps a high enough amount because they're worried about overpaying and losing out. And that's had all sorts of repercussions. If you think about the way that we use auctions in life today, it's not just bidding for a painting or something like that. It's about going on eBay or other auction sites online and indeed the way that governments and institutions buy and sell things from airport land Landing slots to radio frequency bands as well. Sports now and the Los Angeles Lakers are back on top in the basketball world. They crushed the Miami Heat in Game 6 of the NBA Finals to clinch their first championship crown in 10 years and their 17th in total. The title was in the bag well before the final buzzer as the Lakers jumped out to a 28-point lead at the half. They went on to win 106-93. to LeBron James scored a 28-point triple-double and was named Finals MVP for the fourth time in his career. At age 35, he's also the first player to win finals MVP with three different teams. One thing I can do is uh, commit to the game. Um, I put myself, my body and my mind in position to be available to my teammates. Um, I've never missed a playoff game in my career. And uh, the best thing you can do for your teammates is be available. And uh, for me to be available to my teammates and put in the work, um, I just hope I make my guys proud, and, and that's all that matter to me. I make my guys proud, make the fan base proud, my family back home. I can't wait to get back home to them. Akron, Ohio, we did it again, and, uh, you know, that's what it's all about. In baseball, the Tampa Bay Rays stifled the Houston Astros offense in Game 1 of American League Championship Series. Blake, Snell's, Blake Snell pitched five strong innings while the bullpen combined for a shutout the rest of the way as Tampa Bay won 2-1 to start the best of seven. The Los Angeles Dodgers and the Atlanta Braves will open the National League Championship Series tonight. A reminder of our top stories tonight, Carrie Lamb postpones her policy address to buy more time to include measures that require further discussions with Beijing. Electoral officials say allowing people outside of Hong Kong to vote in local elections would raise numerous problems that need addressing and the observatory says they may issue the number 8 typhoon signal overnight. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3 it's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. Chief Executive Carrie Lamb says she'll postpone her policy address, probably until the end of November, so she has time to ask the central government for help with the recovery of Hong Kong's economy. She made the announcement just two days before she was due to deliver her annual address and after mainland media announced that President Xi Jinping will make a major speech in Shenzhen tomorrow. 
Anna-Marie Evans asked China analyst Willie Lam of Chinese University how significant this speech will be. President Xi is very anxious in the run-up to the fifth plenary session of the Central Committee to demonstrate his uh, reformist credentials. So uh, in Shenzhen, he is due to announce 27 measures to ensure that Shenzhen will be uh, at the forefront of uh, what he calls socialist-style reform with Chinese characteristics and also as a core growth engine for the entire Greater Bay Area of 11 cities. This will pose a big challenge to Hong Kong because the position of Hong Kong might be upstaged by Shenzhen, which uh, has doubled the population and whose GDP already exceeded uh, that of Hong Kong two years ago. So, yeah, what does that tell us about Shenzhen's role, especially in the Greater Bay Area? Shenzhen will definitely be the leader in high-tech innovation uh, and also uh, economic structural reform, and uh, it will serve as a contrast to uh, the overall uh, conservative uh, economic policy of uh, Xi Jinping. So it is a window to tell the Western world that economic reform is still going on. So does that mean that Hong Kong's role in China is declining? Well, definitely. There's no denying the fact that together with the national security legislation, Hong Kong's position amongst the 11 cities of the Greater Bay Area um, might be sidelined. And uh, this is also one reason why Chief Executive uh, Carrie Lam uh, is anxious to go to Beijing as soon as possible in order to um, reinforce uh, Hong Kong's position uh, vis-à-vis Shenzhen, Guangzhou and other cities in the Pearl River Delta area. Now, do you expect Carrie Lam to meet President Xi? Uh, quite definitely. Uh, Mrs. Lam will be meeting President Xi uh, in Shenzhen and perhaps uh, also in Beijing. So uh, she will be doing a lot of lobbying work for uh, another round of dispensation of um, favorable policies uh, for Hong Kong. However, uh, the fact that um, on an unprecedented basis, uh, she has postponed the delivery of the policy uh, address also shows that the integration uh, of uh, Hong Kong and the mainland has been exacerbated and that Hong Kong's uh, subordinate position to Beijing uh, has become more and more obvious. Uh, she has to seek the blessings of Beijing in uh, overall policies affecting Hong Kong's development. Yes, indeed. I mean, this is the first time since the handover, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. We see that Hong Kong's clout has declined uh, because uh, Xi Jinping and other leaders uh, think that uh, people in Hong Kong uh, are not following orders from Beijing. And in a way, Shenzhen has been uh, shown as uh, a possible uh, alternative in terms of uh, being the showcase for uh, economic reform in case Hong Kong uh, in the forthcoming several years cannot measure up to expectations. The Court of Final Appeal has quashed a government decision not to incorporate six enclaves into their surrounding country parks, ordering the Country and Marine Parks Authority to look again at the matter. 
Environmentalist Chankar Lam, the founder of Save Our Country Parks Alliance, had brought the case to the top court after suffering a succession of legal defeats. She told Jimmy Choi her court win is a major victory for environmentalists who've been fighting to preserve enclaves of high ecological value for years. For the last 10 years, we can see that like the government had made a lot of decisions and didn't listen to the professional advice. So this decision actually defines what is program and then what kind of program they should ask the opinions of the board. So we hope that like this could set a precedent case for the other consultation day, which is ongoing or in the future. We know that country park enclaves are under threat all the time. So with this judgment, we hope that Finally, the authority would do something to protect and make a good and holistic program to protect it. How likely do you think the six enclaves will be included into country parks in the future? I think if they reviewed all the different kind of values like biodiversity, the uh, recreational and educational, actually it has a really high chance. But the point is like uh, a few enclaves like Park Lock is already destroyed. The biodiversity is totally different from the very beginning, so I don't know how they would like to assess from this time mark or like a few years ago. So we still don't know how AFDD would like to uh, the criteria and also the assessment be done. And now that the um, the Court of Final Appeal says that the authority has to consult the Country and Marine Parks Board before they make uh, certain decisions uh, over country parks. Um, what role do you think the um, the board can play in, in the process? Do you think they can play a significant role in swaying the opinion of the authority? That is the point of the board because they are the experts and then they they know how to review and also like read the assessment properly. So we believe that they should give a really professional point of view to advise the government what to do. And can you tell us a little bit about the um, makeup of this uh, advisory board? Um, what kind of people are serving on this board and how independent is the board? Actually, it's appointed by the government, so they involve different kind of stakeholders. Because the country parks, actually, they not only emphasize on the conservation, they also put effort into the recreation and education, and also including the residents or villagers in the country parks as well. So the board is not democratic because it's a point by the government. But so far, the balance of the uh, board member is kind of still there. But in the past, actually, they couldn't function very well because the authority didn't really give them the power that they should have. So we hope that now they have the power to make the decision and then they can do it professionally. China and Cambodia have signed a free trade agreement aimed at slashing tariffs and boosting market access between the two countries. The agreement covers sectors that include trade, tourism and agriculture, under which both sides will cut duties for their products. The deal was put together after less than a year of negotiations. Anna-Marie Evans asked our Cambodia correspondent, Luke Hunt, for more details about the new free trade deal. Chinese State Councillor Wang Yi came in last night and... Uh, they signed the free trade agreement, which was done quite quickly. It was put together in less than a year. The problem is that no one really knows what's in it. We know it's going to cover tourism, trade, 
in a couple of other areas, but like most deals with China, details are short. Uh, what is known, though, is that um, China has often coveted Cambodia, particularly because of its um, military strategic position in the South China Sea. And uh, I, I think most people will see this FTA as kind of an extension of that. I mean, the Chinese have very much cemented themselves in Cambodia over the last five or six years, and that's largely in response to, to an absence of um, Western diplomacy. The United States in particular has all but ignored Cambodia in recent years, and that's enabled the Chinese to come in, and they spend that big, and the Cambodians like that. Yes, as you say, we don't know exactly the details involving trade and tourism, but will this this benefit Cambodia as this sort of a Chinese dominance of Cambodia? Sure. Uh, It will uh, will open up uh, Chinese markets to Cambodian goods at lower tariff rates. We just don't know which one and how much. And the Cambodians desperately need that because they've lost trade preferences to uh, that were handed out by the European Union. They've since been withdrawn over Cambodia's human rights record, in particular the shenanigans that were on display during the elections in 2018. What, you know, when you're saying that, uh, you know, obviously being open to the China market Mm. for Cambodian Mm -hmm. trade items will be beneficial to Cambodia, but what does Cambodia export? The list has grown over the years. Uh, Bananas, rice, rubber, there's access to bauxite mines. Garments in particular, uh, there's a lot of Chinese-owned garment factories here. There's a lot of Chinese-owned special economic zones. And there's there's some 500 factories that were in the offing before COVID-19 kind of came along and uh, dismantled those plans like everywhere else. Now, with China, is is there quite a lot of also Chinese investment in Cambodia? Indeed, there is. I mean, it's probably closer to $30 billion worth over the last 20-odd years, significant now compared with what's coming in from uh, Western countries. And that used to be more donor money. Cambodia was still struggling to get over 30 years of civil war. But those days have been, you know, they're very much in the the revision era. And uh, the Chinese have spent an awful lot of money here. They've invested a lot as well, soft loans. Uh, The problem is, is that... Diplomats complain quietly, I'll never say it publicly, uh, one of the biggest problems are the turnkey projects and they just don't know what the details are. Like, you know, if they're going to lease a 100 hectare property for a factory, is that a 99-year lease? How much are they paying for it? Do they own the land? Uh, it's, uh, there's, there are all sorts of variables in there and it's always been quite uh, opaque. With over 7 million cases of COVID-19, India is currently just behind the United States in the total number of infections recorded. More than 100,000 people have died from the virus in the country. One of the worst affected areas is the city of Pune in western India. People there are struggling to find hospital beds, as the BBC's Mayuresh Konur discovered when he visited the city. The unending battle against coronavirus continues inside this jumbo COVID hospital in Pune, which is suffering one of the largest outbreaks of the virus in India. Right now I'm standing in the command center of this COVID jumbo hospital. Doctors keep eye on the COVID wards with the help of these CCTV footages. Facilities like these were built in the cities like Mumbai and Delhi, which are also the worst affected cities in the country way back uh, in the month of May and June. But Pune received this partially opened facility 
just recently in the month of August. This facility was supposed to have 800 beds, but nearly two months after it opened, it has 600. Over 400 patients are currently being treated here. Rubal Agarwal works for the local municipal council in Pune. This facility will be at full strength soon. We have a shortage of medical staff. Last week, we brought in nurses from Kerala and Hyderabad on special flights. Pune registered its first coronavirus case on the 9th of March. Then a sudden surge in new cases from June, followed by an inevitable pressure on ICU beds. As the numbers went up, many families started finding it difficult to get their critically ill relatives admitted. Something Shekhar Mate knows all too well. We started searching for beds at 11 in the morning and went to four or five hospitals till late evening. Most of them didn't have beds available. Some had them, but not with oxygen supply. Both my uncle and aunt were so ill, they couldn't sit upright in the car. They eventually got admitted, but his uncle later died. An asteroid thought to be heading towards Earth has turned out to be something far more innocent. The BBC's Stephanie Prentice reports. This space object was spotted by a telescope in Hawaii last month by a team dedicated to protecting Earth from what they call doomsday rocks. It's due to enter Earth's gravity in mid-November, but a leading NASA scientist and asteroid expert who looked into it has now said he believes it's in fact just part of an old rocket. The fact it was moving slower than an asteroid and wasn't zipping around at sudden angles as they usually do tipped experts off to investigate further. The space junk is believed to be part of the Centaur rocket launched in 1966 to carry the Surveyor 2 moon lander, which eventually crash-landed. It's predicted it will spend around four months circling Earth before shooting back out. With NASA's asteroid hunter Paul Shodas saying he's almost certain the object won't slam into the planet's surface, in his words, at least not this time round. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Todd Harding from our newsroom. If your child was born on or before December 31st, 2015 and is to enter Primary 1 in a government or aided primary school in September next year, you should obtain the Primary 1 application form from the kindergarten or kindergarten come child care center your child is attending, the Education Bureau or a district office, or download it from Education Bureau website edb.gov.hk from September 2nd to 25th this year. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to Moments to remember, starting now, and uh, let me see, where are we? Sorry for the delay, but I'm searching. <laughs> Number three is up, as you know, and uh, affects everything here. Okay. Ah, magic.
Johnny Pearson Piano Raining in my heart <laughs> 